1: Welcome to the show, Ridiculous Historians. Thank you, as always, for tuning in. Quick housekeeping note today. This is uh, not just our first snowman episode. This is also our first NSFW or not safe for work snowman episode. So (laughs) it gets a little blue here. (laughs) it might not be for everybody i'm uh, bad yeah
0: i'm no nsfw depending on where you work um but maybe not one for to co-listen perhaps with the kiddos because we're gonna get into some pretty raunchy snowman related discussions here um because it turns out that the history of the snowman is much less innocuous and childlike than one might think
1: Yes, that's right. That's right. So I, I think we're, we're both filled with mirth here as we record this, because we did not see this one coming. So well done to our uh, researcher, Gabe, who hipped us to this. Uh, super producer Casey Pegram. Do you, do you know what we're talking about? Do you know what we're alluding to? Or are you on this ride with our audience?
3: I I mean, I'm, I'm guessing it's going to have to do something with uh snowman anatomy, but that's, that's about all I've got. I mean, you know, that it's a pretty obvious uh, place to go there. Yeah. Yes. Yes. So
1: here we go, folks. Uh, snowmen, you know what we're talking about? Did you guys, Noel Casey, did you guys build snowmen when you were wee laddies? Well, I didn't really
0: grow – I mean, okay, so I've mentioned mentioned that I was once a small German boy. Mm -hmm. Uh, Up until the age of six, I did live in Germany, and, you know, it snows pretty regularly in Germany, so I do have snowy childhood memories, but it gets a little hazy in that period between birth to six. So I definitely made a snowman and snow angel or two back in the day, but I don't have, like, distinct – Snowman memories. How about you, Casey?
3: Oh yeah. When when we would get snow here in Georgia, we would definitely go out and build snowmen if there was enough on the ground to actually do that, which didn't happen all the time, but once in a while we would get enough snow to do that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I've uh, I've always loved the the sculpture aspect of it, just going out and building stuff. So anytime that I have been in a place that uh that has enough snow to work with, then I'll do it. But to your point, Casey, there have been a couple of times here in Georgia, where there was a light dusting of snow, and I thought, no, I'm not going to try to force this. (laughs) I don't want to make a desiccated snowman. But as long as there have been people around in snowy climes, there have probably been snowmen. In allthat'sinteresting.com, there's a great article pointing this out. We like to make things in our own image. thats a very human thing. So we'll build human-shaped art pieces basically whenever we can, out of whatever inspires us. And so when we try to think about, like, who built the first snowman? Who had that idea first? It's impossible to figure it out. We will will probably never know because it's ephemeral, too, like an ice sculpture. It literally is an ice sculpture. So we can't ever find the answer to that.
0: It's true, and, and that allthat'sinteresting.com article compares it to the idea of tracking down the first person to ever sneeze. Um, it it's, it's really is something that's like lost to time, um, as, as are a lot of historical firsts, if you think about it. But what we do know is that snowmen have existed uh, throughout history um, and initially were kind of something that was very highly regarded.
1: Yeah, that's the weirdest thing. Spoiler, folks. At the end of the episode, uh, we're going to ask for your opinion about this, but I am I am of the mind now, Noel, that the typical snowman of these years, this era, is probably a little simple in comparison to some of the elaborate snowmen that we're about to learn about. Or should I say snow folk because they're not all snow dudes. We know the first photograph of a snowman was Snowman, geez. John Snowman, attorney at law. Yes, there we go, John Snowman. Uh, This first photograph was taken in 1845 by a photographer named Mary Dilwin. This was not too long after the camera was invented and propagated. So, oddly enough... Just to give you a sense of their place in human history, the first photo of a snowman is also one of the first photos of anything ever, which is, you know, it's a little known fact that you can use to bore people at your next holiday gathering around the turn of the 20th century. They're really popular as an image on postcards, greeting cards, magazine covers, because, you know, what clearer signal is there that the holiday season and winter has begun, right?
0: Absolutely. And it is something that then kind of, Infiltrates um, Advertising You know obviously you know we know Coca-Cola is is largely credited with uh, Kind of popularizing that Image of the modern kind of Santa Claus that we think of today And all of that was in the service of selling You know sugary drinks um, Also you know the whole Coca-Cola polar bear thing Well snowmen uh, Were used or actually what was referred to As snow lushes Were used in ads for uh, Alcoholic beverages like Miller Jack Daniels and Schlitz and it turns out that the first snowman ever to be drawn was uh, considered a jewish snowman uh, bob Eckstein wrote a book called the history of the snowman and uh, traced back the earliest depiction of the snowman to a manuscript of the book of hours from 1380 and it's not in a positive light. It's no. actually almost uh, like a propagandistic kind of anti-Semitic drawing that shows a Jewish snowman melting near a fire. Um, and the accompanying text describes the
1: crucifixion of Christ. How weird is that? The Book of Hours is this devotional book that was pretty, for Christians, it was very popular in the Middle Ages. It's it's the most common surviving medieval illuminated manuscript. But yeah, that's a far cry from Frosty, is it not? Like like, I I was thinking about this. I was thinking a lot about snowman architecture because before the pandemic hit, I was going to be in a very snowy place toward the end of the year. Uh, But now, you know, of course, like many people, I'm staying home. But I thought a lot about what kind of snowman I would build. And I think we all have at least People in our generation, in this part of the world, we all have this sort of archetypal vision of what comprises a snowman, right? Three balls of snow in probably in slightly decreasing sizes, right? Some lumps of coal, although who has coal nowadays? A couple of sticks for arms and then a carrot for a nose. If you think about it from an artistic standpoint, it's got a lot of outsider art or folk art about it. It's minimalist. It's minimalist. It's abstract, but back in the day, centuries ago, the snowman sculptors of yesteryear weren't just plopping three big snowballs one atop the other. They were making straight-up sculptures, and a lot of them were actually working artists who just put their energy into snowmen every so often.
0: Yeah. And that's, again, when I, at the top of the show, I was talking about kind of the prestigious uh, early um, days of, of snowmen, at least in terms of the historical record. Because like you said, Ben, I mean, as long as there's been snow and people, you know, seeing people, there probably have been uh, instances of folks, you know, balling it up and making it into like an anthropomorphic kind of human resembling thing, you know, much like cave drawings, et cetera. So uh, when we really start, like you said, you mentioned uh, that, Early photograph, one of the earliest photographs showing the snowman and then the young boy. But before that, we have historical records of these really absurdly elaborate, like you said, almost like ice sculpture-esque works of art that were done at the behest of royalty. For example, uh, Prince Albert had a 12-foot snowman built for his wife, Queen Victoria, and even Michelangelo um, the famous painter and sculptor um, made one for the Medici, who were the, the famous um, Italian uh, family, the you know, benefactor family. And in 1494, Piero de Lorenzo de' Medici, who was sort of this, the heir to the Medici family, um, was known as Piero the Unfortunate. Uh, and it's largely, I think that nickname came because he was considered weak. Uh, his father, Lorenzo, the head of the Medici family, was considered strong and um, benevolent where uh, the lesser uh, Medici was considered kind of a bit of a spoiled, selfish, greedy brat. Um, So yeah, he kind of had a chip on his shoulder, didn't he, Ben? Wanted to, you know, kind of rise to the uh, reputation of his father, but was having a hard time doing that.
1: Yeah, he had what I call junior syndrome, which is measuring oneself against one's forebearers. Uh, He he did try to be a patron of the arts like other Medici's before him. And he commissioned the famous artist, Michelangelo. He commissioned the famous artist, Michelangelo for exactly one thing, which was to build a snowman in the courtyard. (laughs) And Michelangelo made this amazing sculpture from snow. And this snowman lived on in other people's minds, artists that were envious of Michelangelo's success tried to out-snowman him (laughs) uh, by Mm -hmm. building like a a larger snowman based on famous Roman sculptures, but it felt kind of try hard, you know. There's one thing I want to say, though, that's interesting because we're talking about very wealthy people. We should also understand that this was a boon for people who are not at the top of the social status quo because... These are free art supplies dropping from the sky. You don't need anything but creativity and time to make a snowman now instead of, you know, like, how are you going to buy a block of marble if you're an artist who happens to be poor? So as soon as snow arrives in the Middle Ages, towns fill with snowmen, and not just snowmen, but snow sculptures, snow animals and stuff. And before these things melt, they're often, you know, comparable in quality to legit sculptures. Well, they are legitimate sculptures, but you know what I mean. Sculptures and stuff like stone or metal
0: And and I think our our buddy Alex Williams would appreciate the ephemeral nature Mm -hmm. of these Uh, in the same way that I think, um, is it uh, Tibetan monks that do those like sand mandalas, Um, Mm -hmm. these super elaborate sand paintings that they like just fuss over like for for days um, and then they they wipe them all away. And there's something kind of beautiful about that. Uh, But it's true. It was a great way to like hone your skills if you didn't have access because art supplies would have, you would have had. To have a patron like the medicis to even have access to, to the stuff to, to to like even get into how do you get into bronze you know or, or or um or marble without having someone to help you know buy you that stuff or like quarry mm-hmm. it for you literally so this would have been a good way for like a startup artist to uh attempt to get good at you know making the classical kind of nude sculptures
1: or whatever right yeah yeah that's a really good point man because i i, I think about that too like i remember one of the first orchestras I went to a wee tyke. I saw someone playing harp for the first time. I was maybe five years old. And my first thought as a kid was like, how do you get into the harp? Who just totally who just has a harp laying around? And that's that's kind of a question that's I think that's similar in theme to the question about uh, how someone gets into sculpting. I mean, my grandfather, one of my grandfathers, uh, is is was a fairly well known sculptor, and I still am baffled as to how he pulled it off. Like, how do you just convince someone to give you tons of marble? It's weird. It's a weird gig.
3: Snag a job is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire.
1: This episode of Ridiculous History is brought to you by Mint Mobile. See Mint Mobile for details. This leads us to something called the miracle of 1511. All right, folks. Here's where it's about. Things are about to get a little uh, on the raunchy side. <laughs> yes. So uh, join with a shout out to everybody making a snowman at home. Uh, we are not responsible for how the following story may impact your sculpture. Casey's interested. I can tell Casey's wondering where we're going with this. (laughs) So back in the Middle Ages, things were made with snow to make a statement. You just didn't have a cute little frosty, right? You you might be remarking on the zeitgeist of the time. So of course, it was tradition amongst the artistic class uh, to populate cities with snowmen whenever there was a lot of snow. And this is Europe, so there's going to be a lot of snow in many places at some point in the year. Winter was also a really tough, tough time. Famine, plague, sickness, none of these things, war, of course, none of these things were uncommon. And so when snow came, it was like a a party. You know, there were festivals, there were morale boosters. I know, Noel, you've probably been to, and I know, Casey, you've probably as well, been to Christmas markets in Europe. I've been to a couple of those, and it's it's a very old tradition. It's meant to give people a little bit of a dose of feel good. You know what I mean? A little serotonin in these challenging times. And the the idea, the political idea, is that the public can blow off steam for a few weeks and they can be kind of supervised. In 1511, in Brussels, there was a really nasty winter. It was called the Winter of Death. And for six straight weeks, starting on New Year's Day, temperatures never rose above freezing. So the ruling class said, we're going to have a festival. <laughs> what better time? And this was seen as kind of a, a event for the... Class strife for the misery of the people in Brussels at the time, but it didn't work out quite the way the ruling class wanted. No, from our previous episode, what was the name? Did we found the name for that thing at the top of the chimney, right? Is it the cap?
0: The thing at the top of the chimney is the cap, the little hat that goes on top. Mm-hmm. That kind of uh, so the, the smoke isn't just pouring out in one fell swoop. It sort of like breaks up the the smoke stream a little bit. But yeah, the cap. That's correct.
1: So yeah, like a chimney cap. On the social strife, maybe. I don't know. I, look, all, not all these comparisons are going to work. But what happened, Noel? What happened when this festival began in 1511, when people started building snowmen?
0: Yeah, we don't have like a ton of, uh, of uh, historical record about this, but we do have a handful of accounts. And, and you could describe them, as does Atlas Obscura, uh, as colorful accounts. Um the town poet uh, was one of of these sources, these primary sources, and there were a handful of other diaries. These were definitely not the types of three, you know, mounds of snow stacked on top of each other in descending order snowmen that we think of today. In Brussels, every single corner of uh, the downtown area was overflowing with these figures pantomiming like topical things you know something either from like folklore or something actually from the news of the day you had biblical figures like jesus's you had unicorns you had these kind of like bearded mountain dwelling wild men mermaids you know like village idiots all of this stuff um and they were almost like this kind of I don't know, you think of like a nativity scene, you know, or these different figures, stock characters, not stock characters, but like characters that are interacting together to kind of tell a story, um, tableaus, if you will. And so that was a, a big, you know, thing with these. They were using these uh, these snow creations to tell stories, some of which were pretty
1: gnarly. Oh, yeah, man. Some of these were some of these were stories from pre-Christian mythologies. Some of them were more day-to-day mundane things and not particularly pleasant, like a tooth puller, the equivalent of a dentist. Uh, but the thing is, these ran the gamut. There were some very highbrow snow folk and there were some very lowbrow snow folk. Uh, we see this weird kind of class divide. A lot of the snow sculptures reflect the public fears, their frustrations, their desires. Things were politically charged, and there were also incredibly sexually explicit tableau there, uh, visual satire, social commentary. There was a urinating fountain boy, which I know, Casey, you and I have talked about a little bit, and also Chris, uh, Christopher Hasiotis, friend of the show, Brussels is famous for these, like, peeing statues, which is weird to me. But, you know, I'm an outsider. So <laughs> it's pretty common, though. And people are like, oh, yeah, you know, it's part of our culture. These little peeing guys. Uh, but there, somebody made one of those. Uh, there was a cow that is defecating. Uh, there, if you look at the historical sources that you just mentioned earlier, Noel, More than 50% of the scenes depicted by these snow sculptures are either sexual or scatological. It is all sex and poop for, like, more than half of these.
0: Totally. Yeah, and and we're talking, like, pretty graphic uh, depictions of these things. Some of these are fully anatomically correct. Mm -hmm. Um, We have accounts of couples, you know, basically fornicating for lack of a, I don't know. It just seems like I'm a priest when you call it. Snow banging. Snow banging. Love it. Um, uh, A snow couple um, kind of getting it on in front of the town fountain, complete with like a full erection from the male. Um, And there's in the red light district of town, you had uh, sculptures of sex workers standing on these corners. Um, In another scene, there was actually kind of a naughty nun, um, in the act of seducing uh, a man, um, it was really an, an, a complete, like, carte blanche, you know, way for people to express these very kind of salacious and um, sort of hidden, you know, meanings in religious texts or a way to, to really um, turn it on its head, sort of the um, conservative nature of, of religion.
1: Yeah, there was, a, there was a stand of frozen politicians that functioned kind of as the op-ed page. The population of Brussels was exploring and addressing things that were taboo, that would otherwise be dangerous for some people to, uh, to have dialogue about. So one of the big, big issues, the context in which the miracle of 1511 occurs, was classism. Right, the The social mm-hmm. classes created their own brand of snowmen, and they were caricatures of their opponents. They also reflected their ambitions, their obsessions. So when you're expressing yourself and your concerns and your position in society through the snowmen, other people might not agree with you. So people who were offended by the sculpture of one snow person or another – wouldn't take it out on the person who made it. They would take it out on the snowman. They would try to vandalize it and destroy it. And (laughs) yeah, which makes sense. And thus the Brussels authorities said, we're going to take action. And they printed out these flyers and they made these flyers that threatened to punish anyone caught damaging a snowman, which I think is a really cool Christmassy law. That is so cool. And it's also interesting that like, even though these were, you know, challenging,
0: (laughs) <laughs> works and and oftentimes not particularly flattering to the people in power. Uh, it was protected speech. I think that's really progressive, wouldn't you say?
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's it's nuts. The we have the exact quote that says the noble men from the city of Brussels proclaim that nobody during day or night could break any personage into pieces So the magistrates got involved, and they said, "Hey, stop messing with these snowmen." The public did not always enjoy uh, this freedom. In fact, in subsequent years, uh, derogatory snowmen were became such a problem that the government went back and placed restrictions on making these snow sculptures because they were such a powerful statement. We do want to say, also, by the way, just like an insult comic. Brussels became kind of its own group mind insult comic. Everybody got some. Everybody mm-hmm. was thrown under the bus. The working class, the nobles, the clergy. At some point, everybody got dunked on. And it's wild because history's kind of forgotten the miracle of 1511. Uh, you know, Noel, you mentioned the town poet earlier, Jan Smeckens.
0: Ah, classic. Classic name, Jan Smeckens. Um, he wrote a poem uh, about the miracle of 1511. It was actually a, a ballad uh, that, that kind of describes this period in pretty good detail. Um, it's got a pretty long name. It's Dvander von Klaren, uh Isa an Snee, which I think means snow, I could tell you that much. Um, Ein Verloren en Truge den Gedicht. Uh, which translates to The Miracle of Real or Imaginary Ice and Snow, a lost and then refound poem. And it does exactly what it purports to do in kind of describing this period. There was a reprint of the poem in 1946, but a lot of literary historians don't think it was particularly you know, highbrow. In fact, it's often written off as being vulgar and rhetorical, uh, as opposed to, you know, the kind of high standards of, of classical poetry of Latin or French.
1: And uh, just to make sure that we come through on that blueness warning and make it worth your while. Uh, yeah, the poem, as he said, is vulgar. Also, some of these statues or these sculptures they're being referred to There's one with like One of those fountain boys pissing in someone's mouth. There was another one where there was a couple having sexual congress. And there was, this is creepy. There was a third snowman that was part of the tableau who's like off in the distance sporting a, you know, a snow woody. Uh, And this is a powerful political statement. This is speaking truth to power through art. But the miracle of 1511 is, is maybe a miracle because of that vast social upheaval, the way Brussels held a wintry mirror up to itself. But it's not a miracle because just because there were snow sculptures. This wasn't the first festival of its kind. Uh, this wasn't the first time people had made raunchy snowmen. There were other cities hosting similar events and smaller events before and after this. But this one really... Actual facts changed the society of Brussels and it, it inspired this shift in the balance of power. Snowman, not just as a raunchy satire, but also as political figures. These folks were rock stars. Like, imagine if one day, uh, somewhere in the US, where it, some part of the US where it snows pretty often, people did a protest by building snowmen. It's a pretty genius idea, I think. And I, I hope it comes back. More political activism in your snowmen, please. I completely agree. Um, by the
0: way, I, I did attempt to enter the full text of that middle Dutch poem mm-hmm. that we talked about. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and the translation results are spotty at best. But there's one line that pops out that I think is fantastic. Uh, a large pear, grim, from the flying hen, those crayon-picked... In his own butt, a haunt has its tongue out. Our Lord is standing here. Want to know ten and the women of Sumerian? So we Sagan So yeah, kind of spotty results there, but I love the. I don't, I'm, I'm, I'm intrigued. Those crayon picked in his own butt. I mean, you know, things happen, right? <laughs> so. <laughs> Yeah, things definitely happened, um, and thank God we have Jan Schmecken to help kind of like paint the picture, uh, even if it's in sort of spottily translated Middle Dutch.
1: I love I love Jan Schmecken as a name. It sounds like a cool, unusual flavor of a jelly or jam, probably because of the similarity to Smuckers. But I would I would check out like Jan Schmecken lingonberry jam.
0: That's funny you say that, but in, in German, Schmecken means it's yummy, means something is is tasty.
1: Oh, I wonder if that was a real name or a stage name. Oh, man. The hotspot to say I'm going to be the town poet. Call me Mr. Yummy. Mr. Uh, yummy. So we hope you enjoyed today's episode. And we're not, you know, we're not at all denigrating modern snow folk we'd love to see your snow sculptures or your family's snow sculptures especially if you are one of the people who's lucky enough to live in an area where it snows every year because i can tell you the three of us would be out there every single year building weird snow stuff if uh if we had those materials readily available but yes, send us your snow sculptures uh where do i send them you might be asking well You can find us all over the internet. Uh, Post them in Ridiculous Historians. That's our Facebook page. Uh, Let us know on Twitter or tag us on Instagram, not just as a show, but as individuals.
0: Yes, you can find me on Instagram exclusively where I am at
1: how now Noel Brown. Ben, where can folks find you? Ridiculous historians. You can find me on Twitter where I am at Ben Bolin, HSW. Let me know what awards you will win for the quarries. Uh, and you can find me on Instagram where I am at Ben Bolin. Thanks, as always, to our super producer and snow sculptor extraordinaire, Casey Pagram. Huge thanks to Alex Williams, who composed our theme.
0: Christopher Haciotis here in spirit. Uh, Eve Jeff Coates, check out her new show, J.Ill, with the fantastic, uh, wonderfully talented Jill Scott. Um, it's a fabulous show that uh, Eve has been working on for quite some time and really happy to see that out in the world. So give that a listen and leave a review for them and leave a review for us while you're at it. Uh, it really helps people discover the show and helps pop us up a little further in the rankings over there on Apple Podcasts.
1: That's right. Every time you leave a review, uh, our boss personally sends a consigliere to our house and says, you have one more day. Yep. And uh, since it is the season, uh, an angel may or may
0: not get its wings. We'll see you next time, folks. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.
2: Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists, like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Pluma, Sarah McLaughlin.